Welcome to Tucker Carlson. Today we spent an awful lot of time beating up on the internet, which is the root of most poison in our society. In fact, it's undermining Western civilization itself. But that doesn't mean there aren't great things on the internet. And so occasionally we like to lift up, speak to, and introduce you to some of the brightest lights online. Charles Haywood would have to be one of those. We just became aware of his publication, The Worthy House, of which he is the maximum leader. He's the founder of a political philosophy called foundationalism. And we thought it'd be interesting and edifying to learn a lot more about all of this, beginning with the man himself who joins us on set. Charles Hayward, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank so you. this is one of those, the most interesting conversations we've ever had on this show are with people who, you know, someone smart texts and says, have you read this guy? No. Um, <laughs> that just happened with you. So I've, I've been very impressed by the, mostly the book reviews I have read of yours so far. But just set the stage for us. Who are you? Where are you from? How'd you wind up doing this? I am from Indiana, uh, though I'm kind of multicultural in the sense that my mother is Hungarian, was born in Hungary. Uh, my father taught Russian history. I'm married to an Australian. I have cousins who grew up in Papua New Guinea. Uh, so I have a lot of kind of different inputs, but I grew up in Indiana, which is kind of as generic as you can get. And I love Indiana. Uh, but I went to live in Chicago for several years because I went to law school because undergrad at Indiana University, I was originally going to be a doctor. But then I decided I didn't really want to help other people. So I went into history instead, like my dad. But you can't get a job as in history no, you unless can't. you're a teacher, right? And my, my, I didn't really want to be a history teacher like my father. So I went to law school at the University of Chicago. And I, I've been dining out on this for months. When I was a third year at Chicago, John Eastman was a second year and Liz Cheney was a first year. No way. Yes, but that was before she took all the harpy pills and, you know, yeah. got, got to where she is today. But uh, and I knew that I knew it was a small school, so I knew everybody. Uh, I have no other connection uh, to, to either of them, but uh, I've been dining out that I'm famous two degrees removed or something because I went to law school with famous people. So I practiced as an M&A lawyer for several years, five years, six years. In Chicago? In Chicago, at a big law firm uh, doing securities law, M&A. It was the late 1990s. Yes. Everyone was going to be rich forever. The internet was going to change everything, yada, yada, yada. And then uh, it wasn't that I didn't like being a lawyer. I actually kind of enjoyed being a, a business lawyer, but um, it didn't make me enough money. So I went back to the University of Chicago to get a business degree, an MBA, and then moved back to Indiana to start a shampoo business. Uh, basically, making, that makes sense. Kind of a well-trod path. Yeah, sure. You I go mean, to Chicago Law School, start a shampoo business. Uh, I was, I didn't plan on the shampoo business. Uh, I was agnostic. I just wanted to run a business. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to make a lot of money. Is the short answer because I'm a greedy. But person. you were doing this right around the time that the promise of digital wealth was just was everywhere. Yes. So you're probably the one guy from your business school class who <laughs> into making shampoo. <clears throat> My theory was that you want to go into something unsexy. That because there are an awful lot of businesses that make money that are not sexy. And digital is obviously the sexiest, but there's other things, media and so on, that everyone knows about, but nobody knows about, in this case, contract manufacturing of hair care products, primarily hair care, some skin care and, and so on. So I did that um, for 15 years, built that into a sizable business, and I sold that in 2020, almost, uh, almost two years ago. So you're, you're manu you were a manufacturer, you were not a marketer. Correct. So in, in the contract manufacturing business for hair care, you basically have brands that own the IP for the brand. And so they're marketing shells, as we call them, where they will sell to either directly to retail or to Target or whoever, you know, where there's different channels to market. But the R&D and the manufacturing for new hair care products, and as well as the manufacturing for existing formulas is done typically by contract manufacturers. So for example, I did a lot of, uh, of African-American hair care uh, of all things. So again, you know, it's not clear how I ended up as you know, the North American king of black hair care, but be that as it may, it's an interesting career path. Shampoo makes sense to me. Scented gentle soap, conditioner does not. Did you make conditioner? Yes, shampoo is all pretty much the same. I hate to. Yeah, no, I figured right. that. Conditioners, yeah, that. Where, where the real differences you get into is styling products. So if you're, that's where the real. But what is conditioner? Exactly. Conditioner is a is a type of. Uh, it basically changes the charge on the hair, the electrical charge on the hair, and you can also add things that slick it down or that make it give it a softer feel, like silicones. I mean, your hair is rich and luxurious. You must. I wash it with soap. Oh, yeah, okay. well, there you go. You have naturally good hair. <laughs> Other people need help. And so that's why they use conditioner or styling products of, of one kind. Is it complicated to make it? Um, it's like anything. 
the formulas are not, not that difficult. They're typically not reaction chemistry. It's basically just mixing. Uh, but like most things, there's an art to it. This is what Matthew B. Crawford would call tacit knowledge. That is the skill that comes from doing. That is, if, you, so if I gave you a recipe for shampoo, you would struggle to make it until you had tried to do it a bunch because there's a lot of knowledge in there that can't be communicated. That is, how, what is 2,000 pounds of shampoo supposed to look like at any given point in the manufacturing process? And it's very hard to communicate that in writing. You, there's really a lot of tacit knowledge involved that it makes it hard for other people to, even if they own the formula, to exactly duplicate a hair care product. Amazing. I can't make brownies, so I'm not going to attempt shampoo. Um, so you become the North American king of black hair care products. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just love that. Life is so weird. <laughs> so then you sell the company. At this point, are you married? Yes. I've been married for 20 years. I'm 20, uh, 20th wedding anniversary this year. And you've got some children. We have five children. Five children. Five children, uh, ranging in age from almost 19 uh, down to 10-year-old boy twins, or Team Destructo, as my wife calls them. Uh, <laughs> and they're basically hellions. Oh, I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> so 10-year-old boys immediately gravitate toward the most dangerous product on the shelf. It yes, doesn't matter what absolutely. They yeah, it's amazing. They have air rifles, uh, but they can only use them under close supervision. <laughs> good, good call. So you sell this business, you're 50-ish, approaching just past, in that range. My prime age. of life, I call it. Yeah, it is prime of life, it is. So you presumably you cash out, you do well with this company, and then you're left with the decision that all people who've succeeded face, which is, okay, what next? And what do you decide to do? Well, I continue doing more publicly what I had already been doing for a while, which is I, had, I read a lot. And originally I started doing book reviews in order to fix in my mind the books that I read. Yes. Because otherwise, a week later, I'm like, what was that book I read? That's I, right. I can be That's exactly right. I just don't have a great, my, my dad had a phenomenal memory, which was great for a history professor. I have a crap memory. So I started writing book reviews and I post them on Goodreads and Amazon. Uh, at one point I was the number 31 reviewer out of all Amazon reviewers. Then they deleted all my reviews. I'm actually filing a lawsuit against them in a week or two. Why'd they delete your reviews? Because they, they were politically conservative and they didn't like them. So that's another story. I'll stick to me. We can come back to Amazon if you want. So my wife tells me, she's like, you should have a blog. I'm like, no one wants to read my reviews. Yeah, okay. They get some traction on Amazon, but do I really need it my own site? But she was right. And so I started putting them on a, a blog, The Worthy House, theworthyhouse.com. And it got a lot of surprising amount of traction, particularly when I moved away from doing straight book reviews to basically, I typically use the book reviews as a uh, way to communicate my own thoughts on various topics. Sure. And I try to make it into a coherent whole. As I try not to repeat myself. I don't re review the uh, books that are very similar. I wouldn't typically review both books because what is there additional to say unless I have come up with some totally new thing to say. So I probably have about 500 uh, writings on the site now. Each one's about 5,000 words, so pretty long. I typically write pretty long. About 80% of book reviews, about 20% are what I would call original pieces on one topic or another. My wife is always saying that those get the most traction, the ones that are original. I mean, they're all original in the sense that the book reviews are meant as platforms for my thought. I know that sounds like I'm a megalomaniac, but they are meant as platforms for all my thought. All writers are megalomaniacs. <laughs> How could you not be? It's, uh, yes, exactly. If you imagine other people need to read what you think, and, I, and I'm there, so I'm not criticizing you at all. Not at all. You are, by definition, kind of a mental. Yes, and I, I'm, my favorite topic is me. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess that kind of makes me a megalomaniac. I mean, I'd be happy to sit here all day talking about me, so don't, you'll have to cut me off at some point. Uh, so but I do some original pieces, which get, tend to get a lot of traction. Like I wrote one on what I call uh, the electoral justice protest of January 6th uh, and things like that, which, which get uh, traction. <laughs> electoral justice protest. I never do this in public. I, I, my theft is all Saprosa, except now, I'm stealing that. Uh, please do. Uh, I've been trying to. I've been pushing for it to get traction, and that, that's totally my locution. I, I came love up with it. That. So just okay. Well, I'm taking credit for it. Yeah, yeah. As I do. call it, the electoral justice. Yeah, no, you go for it. Please do. Um, okay. So, I've written a million book reviews. I've never formulated my own brand new political philosophy, mm -hmm. which is where your book reviews appear to have yes. wound up. 
It's called foundationalism? Yes. What is it? So foundationalism is what I like to call the politics of future past, which is the subhead of the, of the website. And by that, I mean that foundationalism isn't meant to be an ideology. That is, I haven't, I, I, I'm not coming up, I'm not Karl Marx. I haven't discovered new laws of history that I'm enunciating people. The idea of foundationalism is to a set of principles that will allow a return to human flourishing, but is not nostalgic. That is one of the things that people on the right fall into very easily is nostalgia. Yes. It used to be so good in 2005 or 1995 or 1925. If only we could go back to that. It, I mean, this is a basic principle of human life that you can't go back. Yeah, for some reason, people fall into this all the time. Though we need to go back and we need to just wind the clock back and or partially or wholly to some earlier time. So what I think we should do is we should adopt principles that have been proven through time, the you know, wisdom of the past implemented in a future state. So for example, one of the 12 pillars of foundationalism, which most people think is kind of odd, is space. That is Sp space, space and techno-optimism. Space meaning your living space, the place no. you inhabit? No, 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 and not like little houses, no, no, no. no living in the forest, no. I mean space as in space exploration of some type or another. That is, doesn't, I mean, you know, obviously Elon Musk's wanting to go to Mars gets a lot of play. And I'm all for Elon Musk going to Mars or sending people to Mars. It doesn't have to be anything in particular, but I think that the a binding unifying goal of that type for a society is extremely valuable. So I think we, that after we fix a variety of problems in our society, because you can't go forward without uh, reworking a lot of our society, one of the things that we should focus on is space exploration. It doesn't necessarily mean manned space exploration, but it can mean other things. It's creation of a, a new frontier. That is people, a society that doesn't have a frontier tends to calcify and that's particularly true if it's a wealthy society yes a wealthy societies this is obviously a historical cliche a wealthy society becomes static it turns inward it starts to engage in various forms of bad behavior and then ultimately that's the end of that society self-destructive behavior. yeah absolutely i mean every society goes through this arc i mean right. various historians have have pointed to this uh, one possibility of getting off that vicious cycle is creating the new frontier of space and obviously, we're failing miserably at this for a variety of reasons, but I think that's one of the things we need to get back to. So that's one of the 12 pillars of foundationalism. Other pillars are things like a return to uh, naturally dictated sex roles for men and women. Rather than pretending that men and women are the same, men and women should have different roles in society, and that should be universally recognized, and society should be organized around them. Be more specific, if you would. About sex roles? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the, one of the fundamental problems with, there are many fundamental problems with uh, our modern society, among them that's dominated by the left. And, and I talk a lot about the left and the problems with the left. But in the left, it does dictate a lot of the sex role uh, things. But fundamentally, men and women are different. Uh, first of all, there's only men and there's only women. And men and women are different. And so men, uh, by their nature, tend to have and should adopt the outward-facing uh, elements of society, whether that's going to space at the extreme end, uh, being the main family provider. Women tend to be inward-facing. The partnership role of women when their partnership with men is to rule over the family, to rule over the extended family, and to do other things that tend to be more inward-focused and it's kind of a cliche, but nurturing, for lack of a better term. But isn't that limiting their ambition? Absolutely. I mean, one of the basic principles of foundationalism is that, in fact, the basic principle of foundationalism is that autonomic individualism or emancipation of people from unchosen bonds is bad. That is, people shouldn't be allowed to choose whatever it is that they want to in their life. The, there should be a very high role in society for stigma. That is, you shouldn't do that. We look down on you because you choose a career over family that society should, in fact, uh, you know, coerce, to some degree, people to choose the right roles. And by the same token, a man who fails in his responsibilities to provide for his family, to defend his family, that person should be socially shamed. The, we have kind of been told our whole lives that stigma is somehow bad, that all stigma, the goal of society should be to remove 
stigma. And you see this actually in some Supreme Court opinions. Except the stigma of racism. Well, it... Sexism. So, uh, well, sexism more or less doesn't exist in the sense that, like, I mean, I'm as sexist as they come in the sense of, I think, men and women are different. Uh, and sexism is kind of a meaningless term that's adopting the frame of the left. Racism has an actual historical pedigree. Uh, so it, it, the idea of stigma cuts both ways. That is, if you don't, we're, we're never going to be a homogenous society. We're a heterogeneous society, and that's the way it's going to be. But, for example, socially, we should stigmatize people who refuse to acknowledge both that people are different and people who uh, place undue emphasis on differences that don't matter, such as skin color, for right. example. Uh, all those things should be stigmatized. But the idea that everybody should be allowed to do whatever he or she wants in life, uh, that is, wake up one morning and divorce your spouse. We shouldn't allow, we should not have no-fault divorce at all, because the wages of no-fault divorce have been the widespread destruction of the family. In some cases, the old system of fault divorce makes sense. That is, if one partner to the, to the marriage is completely failing at the marriage, you can bring a civil proceeding to dissolve the marriage. But one thing that... Individualism is the heart of no-fault divorce. I wake up this morning, I don't like my spouse, I'm going to get rid of my spouse. Things like that simply shouldn't be allowed in a well-run society. So divorce law, and not just changes in the law, but changes in attitudes, mm -hmm. the death of social sanctions, um, have destroyed the family, but why should, when we've got the federal government and huge employers like Google, why should we care about the family? Well, for a couple things. The, the federal government should, shouldn't have anything to say about the family. The, the federal government, as we all know, is grossly intrusive. Uh, and employers like Google are pernicious. I mean, th this is another pillar of foundationalism, which is uh, the subordination of economics to politics. That is, conservatives, people on the right, have far too long assumed that private entities should be allowed to do whatever they want. Not only should they be not allowed to do whatever they want, uh, the government should uh, place very strict limits upon entities because their concentrations of power allow them to dictate socially. So, for example, I would simply not allow a, any corporation or business entity to have more than 5% of its given market narrowly defined. There's a guy named Tim Wu, who's a Columbia University professor who now works for actually in the Biden administration. And he wrote a book called The Curse of Bigness, which is excellent. Basically, how it's up until very recently, all Americans, or all correct-thinking Americans across the political spectrum, thought the concentrations of economic power were extremely corrosive to society, simply because it allowed entities to dictate things to the larger society that should be dictated by that society itself. So, as you say, Google, I mean, leaving aside the fact that Google censors conservatives and so on and so forth, sure. it, it, Google simply shouldn't be allowed to be as big as it is. It should, it should be broken but, up by free But, I mean, I guess my argument would be free market, free market, free market, free market, Ronald uh, Reagan. Right, I, I have no use. I mean, that's zombie Reaganism. <laughs> I, 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 have, I, I have no use whatsoever for, for, for the... I mean, but free market, Ronald Reagan. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, you may not be listening, Charles. Uh, the, the sad thing is that that is a very effective answer for a lot of boomer cons, right? We, look, I love boomer cons. I know a lot of boomer cons. You know, there's boomers who are conservative, and they all wish we, that's nostalgia, right? We could go back to Ronald Reagan and everything is going to be great. Uh, that's not gonna work out. The free market, it needs to be limited, and it needs to be limited by the government. And of course, you hear me say that, and you're like, well, our current government is terrible. How could I give our current government more power than it has now to cause more troubles for us? I mean, that's because, we have a terrible government. You have to replace the government with a superior government at some point in time. And what that would look like could range from new elections, though I don't have a lot of faith in those, to a complete reworking of the government to be a new system. But once you have a government that is very, as I like to say, government should have very limited ends and unlimited means to achieve those ends. So the current government is vastly too intrusive across a wide variety of things. It needs to be stripped down, but one of its powers should be to break up concentrations of economic power because those are pernicious for society. So this was a 
kind of widely, as you, as you noted, widely understood principle that all concentrations of power, including economic power, maybe particularly economic power, are ultimately dangerous to human flourishing mm -hmm. and limit your freedom. When did that change? When did conservatives stop acknowledging that? The uh, conservatives stopped acknowledging that. I think society as a whole stopped acknowledging that probably fully in the 1990s. Uh, I, I think it was a long process. I mean, the apogee of this belief was the, really the progressive era. And I have very little use for the progressive era and for Woodrow Wilson and so on. I have very little interest in technocratic government. But this particular question, I think, reached its apogee in the early 20th century. And probably it was a combination of um, changes in technology, uh, the Cold War as well. I think the Cold War, yeah. you know, the, the Cold War encouraged the idea that, you know, with, Kind of, it's related to, but not exactly the same thing as what's good for General Motors is good for America. It's good for Raytheon. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, uh, uh, we'll see whether Raytheon will be getting some additional uh, additional business here. Um, so, it, it, but I think it reached its apogee in the 1990s. The, the 1990s were the real decade of greed. That is, you hear the 1980s were the decade of greed, but the 1980s were the last decade of unalloyed optimism. The only reason we were told that the decade of greed was because Reagan was president and the left hates Ronald Reagan, hated Ronald Reagan, and therefore tries to tar him with the idea that uh, that, that was the decade of greed. But the real decade of greed was the 1990s. And I think that's when you really saw the complete abandonment of the idea that economic concentrations of power were bad for society and a switch to really something that's 180 degrees opposite. Also tied to that is that gradually, and we see the fruits of this today, large entities became more and more handmaids to the left. And so that, of course, is a vicious circle. The left is, becomes supporters of uh, large businesses because those large businesses scratch their back. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. So that's where we are today with, you know, Google is the most biggest example, but there's many examples in, in different areas. And then, of course, you have the outsourcing uh, thing as well, which began in the 1990s. So the uh, the big companies began to uh, <laughs> sorry this uh, oh you keeps, keeps coming out. Okay, fine. Um, the the uh, <laughs> the big companies started. We we saw globalization, and so we saw outsourcing of things that were low margin to China or high skill in many cases to China, and then the remaining companies that did business here got bigger and bigger. So you have Apple, which outsources 90% of the actual work to China yet is a very large corporation in terms of its economic power and the money that flows through it. So, for example, I'm, uh, I like cider, apple cider. I aspire yeah. to make apple cider myself. Apple juice, apple cider. And I read the other day that more than 90% of the apple juice sold in America is imported from China. In 1990, it was like 40%, and it's gone up over time. And so what you get is you get concentrations of economic power in areas that allow the businesses or the corporate entities to influence society, like Google, and the economic power to make apple juice is outsourced to China, and those jobs are lost, and those people become gig workers. And, the, and so you get, you get this vicious cycle where corporate entities get more and more power, and the average person gets screwed. I mean, this is not news. I mean, this is no, it's nothing, not. Nothing you wonder, news. and I spend my whole life complaining about the left, and I I hope Me too. To do something yeah. right. Okay, so hey, I'm I'm more interested in how people ought to live, which is my second question. But I just can't resist asking you, what do you think the the goal is? What's the end game? So you atomize society down to the individual, which is what they've done pretty sure. systematically: destroy the family, destroy religious institutions, destroy any voluntary institutions, really. And then you're left with what a couple big multinationals, the government, and individuals. Like what? Where do they? Where do they want this to go? Well, it, I think that there's no particular plan in where the corporate entities or the people with money uh, want this to go. Everybody, I mean, they want money, obviously. Uh, I, to me, the left, that is the project of the left, boils down to two things. And neither of them is really related to money. One I've already mentioned, which is the emancipation of everybody from unchosen bonds, atomization, as you say, yeah. you know, fundamentally. And the other is forced egalitarianism. That is a kind of leveling of people, that everybody has to be equal in all ways. Uh, those are really the core things, the core elements of the left project. 
since say the 1700s or even the late 1600s, but say 1750, beginning politically sure. with, with the French Revolution. Yes. But there's no really plan, right? The plan is that this will introduce utopia. That is, this will introduce hu total human freedom and egalitarianism will be a self-executing kind of utopia. The left project is fundamentally a utopian vision. Do you think they sincerely believe, because the, the track record, of course, is the opposite. Every sure. utopian experiment along these lines has devolved into like true human, the worst human misery. Do they actually think this is going to work this time? Yes, uh, they always, I mean, the best example, which is a subset of this, of course, is, is Marxism or communism. That is, you know, we're going to have the, 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 the new man and we're all going to be spending one day, an hour, one hour a day working and the rest of the time being Aristotle and, you know, things like that. That obviously didn't work out. But if at first it doesn't succeed, try, try again. So the answer is yes. And the reason that they believe this is because it gives meaning to your life to believe this. That is, if you're an somewhat atomized person already. You've already emancipated yourself from unchosen bonds. You're kind of adrift. You're not married. You don't have any other close, bo close bonds. You have a chosen family, which means a family that's no family at all. You're looking for meaning in your life. And this has always been the disadvantage of the right relative to the left. That is, the left gets meaning from politics, whereas people on the right get meaning from normal life, on average, with some, I mean, we all know no, people on the right who do nothing but politics, but- I don't like them. Right, it, it's a bad way to live. But the left is always much more interested in politics, which is why they politicize everything. And yes, to answer your question, they really believe these things. I mean, there's a spectrum. I mean, some people believe a, a lesser version of it in the sense that things will be much better, but they may never be perfect. Other people would believe that it's actually going to be perfect. Other people may have a more inchoate, uh, view of it that is they they viscerally feel that it's going to be great but they couldn't tell you exactly why but as long as we keep going on this path the permanent revolution you know knocking down the barriers to to people's you know, behavior then it's going to get better and better and someday it'll reach you know Tilehard de Chardin's omega point and we'll all collapse into this ball of wonderfulness. Maybe it's inchoate and they don't really they wouldn't say that they don't think we're going to collapse in a ball of wonderfulness but they think Everything will be so much more awesome than today. Something good will happen. Yes. <clears throat> so in the face of that, and that, I mean, they're dominant, as you sure. said. Let's say you're 29 right now. And young people really are kind of are shafted, and they know that they are. Absolutely. So a lot of them, not a lot, some percentage are so shocked by that realization that they're willing to open their minds and rethink new ways to live. How should people live in America right now? Yes, that, that is a great question. And it's actually, I, not, I pretty frequently get questions or inquiries from young people asking me variations on this yeah, question. Yeah, me too. How should I live now? Um, well, the first thing I, I would say is, and I've touched on this already, is don't be nostalgic. That is, you have to understand that the future is going to be different than the past, and there's no future in which it's going to be like it was, in, in, even in, in living memory. But beyond that, the key thing, I think, is to develop useful, resilient skills as a young person in particular, for both men and women, though they may be different between men and women. By useful skills, that's going to depend... Like playing video games or finding free porn skill. sites? Not no. a useful skill. Okay. Uh, great examples of not useful skills, but other examples of not useful skills are being a lawyer. That is, I can confidently predict that in the future, in I think the relatively near future, the demand for lawyers will be much lower than it is now. What? People have been predicting this for years now, and every year I get excited at the thought. Make me feel good and tell me that's going to happen very soon. Very soon. Uh, before 2030. Wonderful. Okay, uh, so. I guarantee it. And you can come ask me New Year's Eve 2031. Okay. I'll take an upside okay. wherever I find it. Okay. So, But it, it, what you shouldn't do is you shouldn't get a professional managerial elite job. So my children are about to start going to college. We would never let them go to like an Ivy League school. We would never let them say, I want to get a job uh, you know, that will lead me on a track where I get to work for an NGO or as a lawyer or for one of these these. Well, how about a consultant? No, terrible, <laughs> terrible idea, terrible idea. That's uh, my favorite. By the way, you're we're roughly the same age. Yeah. But do you know what a consultant, I've never learned, what is a consultant? Well, uh, the only reason I know is because I've been exposed to them in a variety of contexts. And, <laughs> in their natural habitat. Uh, right. In their natural habitat is not pretty. Uh, you know, they hang upside down in sacks like spiders. And so, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I've always said, like, a management consultant, like, if I, as a businessman, 
if someone had come to me and said, I want to hire a management consultant, I would immediately fire that person because I hire you to do the management and why do you need a consultant? I mean, this seems obvious to me, yes, yet it's an it enormous industry. But that's, a, that's, a, that's an even better example than lawyer. Like a lawyer, some lawyers actually do useful stuff uh, and some of it only because the government mandates it, sometimes because lawyers are useful. Yeah. Uh, but management consultants, I'm pretty sure, do literally nothing that's useful. Unless you're a technical consultant, like, you know, computer systems or something. Right. But that's different from management consultant. Like, if you if you work for McKinsey and management consulting, you know, you should be, like, sent to, like, pick, you know, sugar beets in Saskatchewan. Yes. No, I'm with Fidel Castro. Uh, no cuts in sugar cane. Sugar beets, but, you know, same difference. Uh, but the young people should not be pursuing a professional managerial elite track. They should instead be focusing on learning useful skills and both for career and otherwise that will be resilient. And that's going to differ for each person. I mean, some people will want to do, you know, metalworking or something that working with your hands. I think working with your hands is actually an excellent thing that people should do, but some people don't want to do that. There's other, I mean, even working with computers, for example, can be a useful skill. Like, I'm not one of these people who think that computers are all going to go away and we're all going to be living in some you know, Bronze Age future where we warm our hands over burning trash from the remnants of our civilization. I mean, I think we're probably likely to have a lot of chaos in our civilization, but computer skills are actually fairly useful. Obviously, they have to be properly channeled and not pernicious. You know, online porn should be banned. Google should be banned, uh, or at least elements of Google should be banned. But young people should be developing useful skills and again, this is not news, but they should be staying out of the digital realm as much as possible and making actual human connections. I mean, I'm hardly the first person to, to preach this, but I tell my children this all the time. If you are online and the only people you know are online, that's just no way to live. And that's why you see all these terrible statistics about young people. I read the other day that uh, I think it's a quarter of young men under 30 have no close friends at all. I mean, they may have some people they know at work, but they go home and they don't have any, any friends at all. And maybe they talk to some people online, but that's not the same thing as having friends. So I think people need useful skills that will give them some degree of resilience, simply because I think we're entering a time in our society, in our civilization, where there'll be a lot of turmoil. And professional managerial elite type jobs will not help you provide for your family, will not be useful skills in the future to the same degree they are now. And getting some useful skills is the best way to prepare yourself for the future and the best way to ground yourself mentally. That is, if you know how to do something, again, back to Matthew B. Crawford, the philosopher, the, with your hands, that gives you a connection to the real that's extremely important simply yes. for your own mental stability. I mean, you may, you may have no friends, but if you're, doing, if you're living in the real world, you at least still have some connection. To reality and, I agree more. and so that that's what i would so say give, to young people tell us just to put a finer point on it what you would recommend your children do since you're facing this moment yeah. in their development where you're gonna have to guide them and then what do you do to maintain personally to maintain a connection to the real as you said um i'd give the same advice to my children but i've older children uh 18 and 17 boy girl and then girl boy boy on, with, who are younger, 10 and 11. And I think of those as different. That is, the, my older daughter um, uh, wants to teach little kids. So that's probably, they, they currently attend a classical Christian school. She wants to teach at a classical Christian school. That path is fairly straightforward. She can go get a classical education in college, hopefully find a non-beta man to marry, have some kids. Where's she going to so, find that guy, by the way? Do you know? Oh, well, um, I don't know. Hillsdale, maybe. <laughs> uh, that's a problem. Church, Hillsdale, a couple other colleges. But that's a huge problem. Um, oh, it's the problem. I don't have, you know, if I suggested to her that I would help her find a husband, that probably would go down poorly. No, it's, it's, the, it's, <laughs> it's the main problem. I mean, if you, I was telling a female relative of mine the other day, a niece, you have a boyfriend or a man you want to marry who's, you know, kind of irrepressible maybe he's hard edge maybe he's kind of a dick you can soften him yeah but you can't unwussify him no right and, and, and i i was sitting in uh, that's not fixable no i was sitting in a restaurant last night an outdoor thing and i was looking around at all the young people and all the men were wussies it was just appalling i'm like oh my god this is terrible I, you just like oozed off them yeah. like a, like a disease anyway so the younger ones uh, 
I just assume that in eight or nine years, the, the, the world will be a lot different. For sure. And so, like, For one sure. of the, the twins, the, the, the 10 year olds, I just don't see him going to college at all. He loves being outdoors. He loves tools. I have to keep him away from the table saw. Um, you know, he, he's been in the emergency room four times because he's that kind of kid, right? He just he, he runs around all day long. They don't watch TV. So they get in the very 1950s childhood. We, I literally stripped the house of all children's books and bought books from the 1950s and 1960s uh, to stock their, stock their shelves. Um, so there's a, there's a Random House series from the 50s and 60s called Landmark which is like 200 books, history books for children. And so I, I bought every single one uh, online and you know they, they read things like that. So they, they have this bizarre 1950s childhood, which might cause them some social problems, I guess, down the road, but you know, that's a problem for, for future Charles. Um, but I just assume they're not gonna, the world will be different. So yes. the, uh, the college in its current incarnation, certainly as a credentialing, required credentialing institution to join the professional managerial elite won't exist or this or that it'll be so separate from the rest of america normal america right. that i can just ignore it and you know who gives a crap i'll worry about that when i get to it what about your son your oldest son 17 year old yeah son? so like that's a very boys can get very hurt in college it's it's t i think it's a little bit tougher with boys at that age yeah absolutely what uh, would your advice be um well i think my advice to him would be to uh, not let yourself be corrupted by the culture. I mean, that's the biggest single problem. That seems like it's not likely to be a problem at this point. I mean, my children have, have mostly due to my, my wife's good management, rather than my good management, turned out to be uh, outstanding and upright citizens who are, who are properly on the right wing. Uh, so uh, I think he's doing fine. But avoid being corrupted by the culture, as well as learn useful skills. In his case, he's technology-oriented, which is weird because we never let him have a computer as a kid, and all of a sudden he's a computer genius. So uh, I think you know he's like the movie War Games, right? I think yeah. he's, he's starting global thermonuclear war. Let's hope not. Uh, so um, that's what I'd advise for him. But you know how it is as a parent; you can only do so much. You have to for let sure. go at some point. Again, I mean, is I your wife fully issues. on board? With us? Oh yes, my my wife and I we joke that we're we're the same person. I mean, she's the nice version. I'm kind of a jerk. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I have a very low agreeableness score on that Jordan Peterson personality <laughs> test, which, by the way, is not I'm disagreeable. It means I have low conformance with social norms. Oh, yeah. uh, so how are she's you with TSA lines? Uh, well, it's funny. I I was flying to D.C. the other day, and I hadn't flown through D.C. in a long time, and I was irritated because apparently when you fly to D.C the capital city, you know, like the Hunger Games, you have like special security screening because the, like they search your bags and- Because right. important people live there, yes, you I, need to protect them. I, I was mortally offended. I was like, you know, you know the, the, there's no reason why the Washington DC should have all these special precautions for like an average airline right. flight. I was, uh, so to me, that was very emblematic of many of the things that are wrong with our society now that people just flying in this case, into Dulles, so not anywhere near like actual DC, uh, are required to go through all these humiliating security theater steps to protect the you know people in DC who frankly don't matter. I the, mean, you know, the chosen elect. Yeah, what do you mean. Yeah, I, I was members I, I was, of the ironic priesthood. Please, whatever it takes to protect them. Well, yeah. I, I, so normally I try to be very polite, and, and I didn't like cause a scene. But I, when I was handing my bags back after them being searched, I sighed and did not say thank you, which for me is pretty, I mean, <laughs> I can get very aggressive if I'm directly affronted, uh -huh. but- uh, You sound like my wife. That's normally like, I try to say thank you to people, but in this that, case that, not. That's like the wasp version of a punch in the face. And I didn't say thank you. And that taught them a lesson. <laughs> They're off the Christmas card list. I'm sorry. I do send Christmas cards. I, I, by the way, I'd like to say another failure of modern society is this failure to send Christmas cards. Like we send Christmas cards, or my wife does, though I, I help address them, uh, every year without fail, but we get fewer and fewer Christmas cards every yeah. year. Now maybe it's because people hate us more and more, but probably not. I mean, I think it's like my, I have a cousins in England and one of my cousin, my cousin's wife sent around a message saying, instead of Christmas cards this year, we're going to make a donation to UNICEF. I'm like, what the hell does this have to do with anything? Not in my name. <laughs> right. But, I mean, but like, what does UNICEF have to do with Christmas cards? Send the damn Christmas card. That's what it's there for. It's a, it's a social connection, right? But instead, we're going to have like an online donation to UNICEF. I mean, what the hell? 
Anyway, so that's what I devise for the children. So I, I can switch to the second topic, which is what so that, I do. Yeah, I'm interested in that. So you, um, as a writer, I know firsthand, you live in your head. So you seem to acknowledge the need to get out of your head and establish, and I, I love the way you described it, some connection to the real world. Yeah. What do you do on a regular basis to maintain that? Uh, once upon a time, I used to do a lot of woodworking. And in fact, I briefly, before I ran the shampoo business, ran a cabinetry business because I was looking for uh, a, a business to buy and that put money on the table. Because I quit my law firm job with no money and no savings. And my wife was pregnant with our second child. It just seems very insane in retrospect. And so I needed money, so I started a cabinetry business. So I did a lot of woodworking. And woodworking is a good thing to I connect agree. you to the real. But turning what you like into a business makes you hate it. Like for years, I, I, I just hated woodworking because I had run it as a business. So what I like to do, I do a little bit of metalworking and I aspire to do more. But what I really do now is I play gentleman farmer. Gentleman loosely used in, in this case. So we have several acres in, in Indiana and I raise chickens. Uh, and I raise bees, and um, expand, I, in fact, a couple weeks ago, we got our first honey harvest. It was only 30 pounds, but 30 pounds of honey That's will, a lot. will take, take you a long way. We gave most of it away, but hopefully we'll get, we'll get more this year. And I'm going to put several acres, probably two acres, under, so a couple acres, under cultivation. So basically farming. I mean, small-scale farming and not you know, commercial farming, though presumably much of it will end up being given away. But... Even more than the manual crafts like woodworking and metalworking, farming and animal husbandry connects you to the real. Because What's beekeeping like? Beekeeping is great. And it's actually not as hard or as difficult or as dangerous as, as you might think, unless you have an allergy to, to bee stings. The beekeeping involves simply getting a hive and it has those frames that you yes. see people hold up. And, and you can basically buy a queen, every hive has a queen. You buy what's called a nucleus hive, which means you have a couple of frames with a queen and some young bees, and you just drop those into an empty hive. And as long as you're reasonably close, within a mile or so of flowers and so on, they will uh, take it from there. They'll build out the hives and they'll make more honey and you just have to manage it to a certain degree. And, you know, for example, you have to leave them enough food for the winter and things like that. But it's fascinating to watch them because they, again, it's a connection to the real. You, you watch them and they're, they're doing their thing and you, you learn a lot just watching them. How hard is it to get the honey from the hive? Uh, it's not as hard as you'd think, though it does require some equipment. Uh, the, the basic uh, routine is you take out the honey, which is capped in the combs. You cut off the wax where the bees have capped it and you spin it like in a centrifuge yes. to, to extract it. But you have to filter it just to get out like wax pieces and so on. But it's surprisingly easy. I mean, basically anybody can do it. And I, I encourage anybody to do it. You can, people do this in like suburban homes, for example. I mean, sometimes yeah. your neighbors bitch and moan or they're afraid or what have you. Uh, but it, it, it's a great thing to do. Uh, you, you hear a lot about colony collapse disorder that a lot of the bees are, are dying. That's somewhat overblown. Um, the wild honeybees mostly died out in the 1990s as a result of something called the varroa mite, which came from Asia. Like, you know, many bad things come from Asia, uh, various pests. And the varroa mite wiped out all the wild honeybees. And so you have to, and they'll wipe out your hives if you don't treat for them. Um, so, but there's, there's still plenty of honeybees in America. But the problem is that it's become kind of a monoculture. There's tons of commercially operated honeybee operations, and they ship them across the country to California to pollinate almonds every year. There's a book called uh, The Beekeeper's Lament, which discusses a bunch about this. And that's great, but it's, it's an artificial monoculture. That is, you have these almond trees in the middle of California where they're artificially irrigated and artificially fertilized so that we can go to Costco and buy five pounds of almonds for 10 bucks. When I was a kid, almonds were expensive. Now yeah. they're, they're cheap and you have all these bees and it's an industrial operation. That's not, I mean, it's okay, I guess, uh, but it's a good example of the kind of uh, soulless industrialized agriculture that uh, so much agriculture is nowadays. 
Same thing with like corn and soybeans. A huge percentage of American agriculture, field agriculture, goes to corn and soybeans so that we can have high fructose corn syrup and make ourselves fat and do all these stupid things. Uh, I think it makes a lot more sense for people to have uh, individual uh, farming operations, whether they're tiny. I mean, you can have a tiny garden plot or even, you know, pots on your balcony kind of thing and smaller farms. It may not be as efficient. I mean, the reason we do all these things is so we can have cheap food. And the food is dirt cheap in America. You know, obviously, inflation has made it a lot more expensive recently, so that's not good. But generally speaking, we adopt these industrial farming practices for, to achieve, which are tremendously destructive and bad in many ways for the animals, factory farming, things like that. Uh, factory farming is kind of an abomination so that people can have half-pound burgers and stuff their faces, it's really not a good way to live. So I think me doing a little bit of small-scale farming is in some ways you know, getting back to the way that people should be living, simply because it, again, connects you to the real, but also it provides an example to other people of one way that you can live that's a lot different than the way people live nowadays. Could you grow enough to sustain your family? Probably not, uh, because the the, prob the biggest issue is calories. You can grow small-scale meat pretty easily, goats, sheep, even cattle, on relatively small amounts of land, and I have enough land for that. Though that's going from chickens to cattle is a whole other a whole yeah. other level of, of commitment. Um, but growing grains on a small scale is actually quite difficult. Uh, pests, things like that. Uh, and you, growing vegetables won't feed your family, right? I mean, you, you, you can only eat so many tomatoes, and tomatoes don't have that many calories. So if you really want to feed yourself, you would have to grow grains. But you, that could be done on a much smaller scale than people do now, and directed more directly at people eating. That is, right now, soybeans, I mean, nobody eats soybeans, except for edamame at you know, sushi restaurants. Yeah. It, it all goes into various forms of processed industrial agriculture or seed oils or these things that are really fundamentally not that good for us and may be very bad for us. Right. So if people grew on a smaller scale or farmers locally grew on a smaller scale, say 10 acres of wheat, you could imagine that that would be uh, a effective way to feed small amounts of people. There's, people reject out of hand the idea that we can have anything but massive industrial agriculture. Um, and maybe that's true in a place like China with the amount of people you have, have to feed. Uh, but it's not true here. If people engaged in smaller scale agriculture and dialed back some of their expectations about, you know, eating 6,000 calories a day, people could still eat very well, eat more healthily, and I think it'd be overall better for our society on every level. What's your reading regimen like? <laughs> um, I typically run a couple books at once. Um, uh, I read fast and I write fast. Uh, I don't have quality thoughts, like you know, no one's going to mistake me for Aristotle, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I have fast thoughts. And so I typically am reading one or two nonfiction books. Um, I don't read that much fiction, but I do read, read some fiction uh, occasionally. And then I have kind of background books where I'm reading a series of books. So I, I read uh, 15 or 20 books on the Spanish Civil War, and then I wrote a long piece about the Spanish Civil War. So those books kind of go in parallel to the kind of one-off books that I'm reading uh, at any given time. So I re recently finished reading a book uh, by John Michael Greer called Dark Age America. John Michael Greer is this, this fascinating guy who's kind of a leftist, but not really. He's a druid and he's very kind of eco-focused. For years, he's been predicting peak oil. Now, peak oil, it has not come to pass, right? You know, I remember in 2007, 2008, we were all told that the oil was going to run out. Yeah. And has it run out? No. It will run out at some point, probably. Uh, but he, it's an interesting book because he's basically predicting what the future will be when we run out of resources. I'm not entirely convinced, but it's, it's interesting stuff. So things like that. I read a book on uh, fentanyl, uh, the fentanyl epidemic, where the Chinese are making fentanyl and the Mexicans are shipping it up to us, I mean, uh, in Indiana. Uh, fentanyls, I mean, a lot of places, fentanyls uh, is a big problem. I mean, I think it was more than 100,000 drug overdose deaths last year, and 80,000 of those were, were fentanyl. So that, that's a huge problem. It's a very eclectic so, so end on this, and anyone who's made it, you know, an hour into this conversation is obviously interested in what you have to say. So this, this may be a little specific, but the Spanish Civil War, see a, a, a war in Spain in the late 1930s, right before the Second World War. Sure. Um, 
kind of because it was followed by you know, the biggest war in history, it's not studied in the way that it would be otherwise. You have studied it. What are the lessons of it? The lesson, the basic lesson in the Spanish Civil War is that once the left gets going in its grab for power, which is typically exemplified by the uh, attempt to delegitimize any backsliding, that is, any electoral success of the right is regarded as de facto illegitimate and the basis for violence, ultimately, against the right in order to maintain left gains. Once that process gets going, uh, it almost always unfortunately, leads to actual violence because the left project, as I say, is utopian. And anybody who stands in the way of that utopian project is by definition not just someone you disagree with or someone who thinks that the capital gains tax rate should be slightly different than it is, but an existential enemy. And in the nature of things, ideological conflicts of this type um, whether the wars of religion between Catholics and Protestants right. back in the day, right. or nowadays the ideological demands of the left to achieve complete power uh, inevitably end in violence. I mean, I don't like that, but that's the historical lesson. And the other lesson I always talk about, or the other war I always talk about, I have a long piece on my, on my site about the Finnish Civil War of 1919, which is basically the exact same thing, uh, but telescoped in time. That is, the, the Finnish left started a civil war because the right won a majority in parliament. Right. And even though probably most left people didn't want to start a civil war, they, they don't have a limiting principle internally. And so the, the Bolsheviks had just come to power two years before yes. and were kind of spreading their poison throughout Europe starting. Exactly. That. But they gave almost no help to the, to the Finnish Reds because they had their own fish to fry. Yeah. In fact, the Finnish Reds were, were very upset about this. And so the Finnish, the Finnish communists started a civil war and uh, you know, were defeated in a very brutal little civil war by the, by the, by the rest of society, in essence. Um, but again, you see the same uh, tropes in these rising civil conflicts. And the number one thing that the left does is claim and shriek that any electoral success of the right is de facto or necessarily illegitimate. So smart. Last question. Are you related to Big Bill Haywood? I am not related to Big Bill Haywood, I'm pleased to say. Uh, <laughs> uh, Big Bill Haywood, people who don't know, was a communist who was buried in the Kremlin wall. Yeah, he died in the Soviet Union. Yes, and so I, I, there's absolutely no relation. I, seriously, I, I probably wouldn't admit it if there were, but there is no, there is no relation, okay, I'm good. pleased to that, say. That was the one sort of stumbling block to having you on, and I didn't check ahead of time, but now we know. <laughs> I, I'm pleased to report. No Charles relation. Haywood. Absolutely worth reading, Foundationalism, which I'll be reading about tonight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Chuck Carlson, today's the name of the show. New episodes three days a week on Fox. Of course, we'll continue to bombard you with our opinions nightly, 8 p.m. on the Fox News Channel.